Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, Forklift Safety and Compliance, Answering the Tough Questions, sponsored by J.J. Keller's Keller Online. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety and Health Magazine, and I am moderating today's session. Thank you all for joining us. We're going to start the presentation in a couple minutes, but first I want to go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we will conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's speakers. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. I will let you know more about that after this presentation. This webcast is archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. Finally, if you need basic troubleshooting information, click the Help button located on your screen. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speakers today are Travis Roden and Mark Stromey, editors at J.J. Keller. Travis has worked at J.J. Keller for more than 20 years, and among his current specialties are safety management and auditing. He was previously the safety manager for a Midwest-based manufacturer of buses and heavy-duty trucks. Mark has worked at J.J. Keller since 1994 and is a lead editor on a variety of publications, including the OSHA Compliance for Construction Activities Manual and the Construction Regulatory Update Newsletter. Mark also develops content for online safety training, writes a number of trade articles annually, and is an authorized OSHA outreach construction trainer. Gentlemen, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. All right. Uh, thank you, Alan, and uh, welcome uh, to everyone joining us today. This is Travis. I'm going to going to kick us off here with uh, just a few statistics about uh, why forklift and uh, powered industrial truck safety is um, is of, of such importance and relevance right now. Uh, this year, in particular, uh, forklift safety has seen a renewed focus. Um, we've, we've had the observance of a National Forklift Safety Day. Uh, there's been a revised American National Standard or ANSI lift truck industry standard, uh, as well as a regulatory agenda item uh, to potentially revise the OSHA powered industrial truck standard. And that increased focus is certainly with good reason. Uh, powered industrial trucks or PITs continue to be in heavy use throughout industry and they continue to be a source of severe injury to workers. If you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics data, uh, there are nearly 543,000 forklift and similar PIT operators in the current workforce. And over a two-year span uh, ending in 2015, there were an average of 75 PIT-related fatalities per year. Uh, and, and further, over 54,000 injuries that actually involved cases with days away from work. So when, uh, you know, when there are injuries with forklift operation, they can be often are very serious. Over another uh, two-year span, if you look at from the OSHA side of things, employers made over 800 serious injury reports to federal OSHA, again, about cases where a forklift or other PIT was involved in a serious incident, which means typically means either a fatality, a hospitalization, or an amputation. So that kind of sets the stage uh, for what we're going to cover uh, today. And you can see on the slide there um, pretty much the scope of what we're going to look at. So forklifts and other PITs, as we said, are some of the most common and most powerful pieces of equipment that you'll find in workplaces. With this power, obviously, comes the potential for serious hazards. OSHA's Powered Industrial Truck Standard at um, 1910.178 uh, gives the safety requirements that address many of these hazards. 
But unfortunately, um, the regulations are vague in some cases, and in some cases, they're actually silent on a particular issue. So what we hope to do today is provide an overview of the OSHA requirements, as well as answer, provide some information on some of the frequently asked questions that we get. So we'll cover the scope of the, the standard. Um, we'll look at training requirements, as well as inspection and maintenance issues, along with a few other um, hot items that I think uh, a lot of people um, have questions about. So starting with the scope. The scope of the standard, 1910-178, uh, you know, what does it cover? Does it cover pallet jacks? Does it cover scissor lifts, golf cars, um, so on? It's actually uh, quite broad. Um, if you look at 1910.178 paragraph A1, that's where the scope is located. Uh, certainly covers the traditional sit-down rider forklift that we're all familiar with, but it also applies to stand-up forklifts as well as to order pickers, and even powered pallet jacks or rider, walkie rider trucks. Uh, OSHA calls these in the scope motorized hand trucks. They all fall under the 1910-178 standard. They all require training, evaluation, and inspection, and so on. As you can see on the slide here, um, the ANSI B56.1 industry standard, uh, going back all the way to 1969, um, OSHA adopted that when it issued its own standard and it did have a slightly more task-oriented definition, uh, actually refers to equipment that is designed to move material. And here are just a few more specific examples uh, if you have questions of equipment that is covered under the 1910-178 standard. And this actually comes from the preamble to the final rule, and again, it's based on that ANSI standard which OSHA adopted. So if you take this list, in conjunction with the scope that we talked about on the previous slide, hopefully we'll shed some light on what equipment is covered um, by the standard. Now the general rule of thumb is um, if it's powered and it's designed to move materials other than dirt, then it's covered under 1910-178. Your major exceptions are going to be earth-moving equipment, and there we're talking about equipment like front-end and back-end loaders. Those do not fall under uh, the OSHA standard. In fact, they're specifically exempted in the scope. And even if this equipment has been modified to accept forks, uh, if you, equipment that was designed primarily to move earth originally is not covered under uh, the 1910-178 standard. And likewise, golf cars are not covered under the standard. And there are some letters of interpretation stating that scissor lifts are also not covered under 1910-178. And the reason is these are generally people movers, personnel movers, and not material movers, even though some people obviously use them in that way. Uh, similarly, you take equipment like hand carts that are not powered. Those are not covered under the standard. Now that being said, depending on you know your, the equipment we're talking about and the industry, you know there may be another uh, separate OSHA standard. Um, for example, in the construction industry standard, they have a little bit more um, specific for certain types of equipment. So it's not saying it's you know it's a free for all just because it's not covered under the OSHA 1910-178 standard. It just means that either you're looking at the general duty clause of the OSHA Act or some other specific standard. So that is a bit about the scope of the standard. And now we're going to talk about the training requirements under the standard, which I think that's probably the area uh, where we receive the greatest number of questions, including those that you see on the screen right now. So what I'm going to do is turn it over to Mark uh, to, to get us started on the forklift training requirements, answering some of those common questions that we get. Mark? Hi, Travis. Uh, thanks, and uh, thanks, everybody, for for coming today. Uh, one question we get quite frequently, I, as a matter of fact, I, I got a couple yesterday on this, uh, involves the qualifications for a forklift trainer. So 
I think we should just start with that. Uh, OSHA states, and I'm quoting, all operator training and evaluation shall be conducted by persons who have the knowledge, training, and experience to train operators and evaluate their competence. Uh, the standard doesn't go into any more detail, so OSHA kind of leaves it up to the employer to ensure trainers meet these general qualifications. But it's important to know that there are no requirements uh, for trainers to take certain classes. They don't have to have any sort of certifications, and they do not have to be recertified uh, as trainers at specific intervals. There is some guidance from OSHA. The uh, agency's compliance directive says, an ex quote, an example of a qualified trainer would be a person who, by knowledge of a recognized degree, certificate, or professional standing, or who, by knowledge, training, and experience, has demonstrated the ability to train and evaluate powered industrial truck operators. That's quite a, quite a mouthful. So the directive says, you know, it's okay to bring in a trainer from outside the company, and truck manufacturers uh, often, you know, send a rep out to do the training. Uh, but more importantly, the trainer can just be another employee that meets that um, uh, qualified trainer uh, that I just read off. The, the trainer doesn't have to operate a forklift as part of his or her job, but he does have to have operating and driving experience. There's a letter of interpretation uh, from July 23, 2003. It sheds a little light on what the agency means by experience. Uh, in general, I'm quoting, in general, the trainer will only have sufficient experience if he has the practical skills and judgment to be able to himself operate the equipment. Uh, for example, if the employer uses certain truck attachments and that trainer's never operated a truck with those attachments, well then that person would not be qualified to train and evaluate others. They need to know how to operate all the attachments um, and also the safe use of those attachments. The standard does not, as I mentioned, require uh, a trainer to operate a powered industrial truck regularly, like every day. Um, out, that is outside the scope of their operator training duties. So once in a while, they op, you know they are familiar with the, the forklift. They they operate it, but they don't have to do it every day. Uh, now that we have the trainer, let's look at the training program first. The training must be understandable to the workers being trained. That makes a lot of sense. In general, uh, if you give work instructions and other information in a language um, other than English or uh, by using a certain vocabulary level or verbally that you give that instruction if the workers can't read, then OSHA expects train training to be conducted that very same way. They've got a policy statement that uh, OSHA wants their compliance officers to use, and they've been instructed to verify employer training was provided in a language, vocabulary, and format that workers can understand. And keep in mind, this goes for any type of training, not just forklift training. The important thing here is all forklift operators must be trained before they before they can be allowed to operate forklifts. That makes a lot of sense. But what makes up the training program? Well, all operators must receive a combination of three things, formal instruction, practical training, and a performance evaluation. Uh, in OSHA's eyes, this is a very, very thorough approach to training. And when you can have confidence when uh, an operator or driver has completed that training, they should be able to for sure operate in your facility safely. Okay, formal instruction. What does OSHA actually mean by this? Uh, well, they say in general this is classroom training using lecture, discussion, videos, written materials, case, case studies, and other types of uh, things. Now, we get a lot of questions about interactive computer-based training. Everybody's got that now. Um, and yes, 
you can use that to meet the classroom part of the training program. So why why a classroom? Well, OSHA and other educators feel that a quiet, comfortable setting that allows trainees to concentrate on learning new material, that is very important, and that's the classroom. So you want to use this part of the program to introduce the hazards of operating a forklift, OSHA's requirements for forklift operation, how forklifts are used in your workplace at your facility, the so-called rules of the road at your facility, uh, you know, what, what you tell uh, operators that's specific to your location, and then how to find and use information on the truck's operating instructions. Now, the best classroom training involves employees in the discussions and in the exercises, like I mentioned, case studies. What this does, it gets them to think about how they're going to operate the forklift. And important to note that the trainees should be encouraged to uh, ask questions, and the trainer should also ask questions to ensure everybody stays on their toes. All right, let's talk about practical instruction. Now, the only way to become a proficient forklift operator is to drive the truck. This practical portion uh, of the training is very critical to having safe operators. We recommend, and, and a lot of other people do, that this part of the training starts with a tour of the truck's features and controls. So what you want to do, you want to do a simple demonstration you, to show these trainees how to conduct a safety inspection of the truck, how to start the truck, and how the truck's controls function. Then, the moment of truth after this introduction, you let these trainees have hands-on practice. So what does that mean? Well, use the same demonstration and hands-on approach as the training progresses. So gradually introduce skills. For example, have the trainees learn how to maneuver the truck in the workplace before they're even going to handle any loads. Then when you feel confident and they feel confident that they're ready, have them evaluate a load's weight and stability, and then actually approach and pick up that load, operate that loaded truck, and then go ahead and deposit that load. So, Travis, uh, you are up next. All right, thank you, Mark. So one of the good things that OSHA did for us when they um, when they revised this standard several, several years ago is um, they actually list out for you the topics that you have to cover in training. Uh, so a lot of the OSHA standards don't do that. They just say things like, you know, the trainees must be, you know, qualified or you need to train them uh, so that they can safely do the job or whatever the case may be. Uh, not with uh, forklift and powered industrial trucks. They actually give you a list of, um, oh, 20 plus topics that uh, some are truck related and some are workplace related that you have to cover. And we're going to go over those on the next couple of slides here briefly, at least list them for you. So under uh, truck-related topics, um, you know, a lot of this information is going to come from your truck's operating manual. Uh, and OSHA does expect operators to have training on the information from that operator's manual. If you take a look at these, uh, they do make sense. Everything on the list is something that a forklift operator certainly needs to know, um, you know, differences between a truck and an automobile. Uh, if you've never, the first time getting on a forklift, a sit-down forklift, you know, obviously the thing that's going to jump out at you is the, the steering from the rear is going to be different. So OSHA specifically requires that you cover the differences between a truck and an automobile in, in training. And a few other ones here, um, looking at uh, capacity and stability. OSHA requires that you train on something called the stability triangle, which is uh, kind of can be a difficult concept to illustrate. But I think that's where you refer back to what Mark was talking about. Um, that's the type of thing that you can introduce very well in the uh, classroom setting versus out in the, uh, you know, then you can reinforce it when you get out into the uh, 
out into practical demonstrations and whatnot. You can you can show there are a lot of good good graphics out there that show exactly what you know what is meant by the stability triangle and you know how it impacts the truck with the load and, and so on. So you know a lot of this is going to depend on on um, you know exactly what types of truck you have, what the operators will be doing, and so on. But those are the truck related topics um, that you'll need to cover. There's also uh, what are what are called workplace related topics that you have to cover in training. This will be very unique to your facility, so uh, you won't find a lot of it in videos or the training products that you might that you might purchase. Um, these would be the types of things like the types of surfaces that you operate on. Uh, you know, do you have ramps? If so, then you'll have to train on that. You know, do you operate in an area where there are pedestrians? What about narrow aisles and so on? So all those topics are required um, uh, to be to be covered. So um, and that would be in the initial training for new operators, and that actually leads us. Uh, into the discussion on refresher training, and as well as a key topic, the avoidance of duplicate training. We get a lot of questions. Um, in fact, I think I've seen some come in already today, uh, talking about newly hired forklift operators who already have experience. You know, they've been operating a forklift for several years, either at another location of your facility or at another company. So, as we'll discuss shortly, OSHA does allow you to accept previous training. Um, but generally, experienced new hires will always need training on at least some supplemental training on these workplace-related uh, topics. And with that, I'll turn it over to Mark to uh, delve into that a little further. All right. Thanks, Travis. Um, all right, so refresher training. Um, so what about it? Well, many people ask if forklift training is required annually. It isn't. Instead, OSHA requires refresher training to be conducted whenever any of the situations that we have on the slide occur. The operator has been observed to operate the vehicle in an unsafe manner, uh, maybe horseplay or something like that. There's an accident or a near-miss incident. Uh, safety issues are uncovered during performance evaluations. Um, maybe the operator is assigned to drive a different type of truck. Uh, let's say a sit-down rider versus a stand-up truck or an order picker, so something they're not familiar with. And finally, if there's a condition in the workplace that changes that could affect the operation of the truck, you definitely have to train on that. So these are when you have to conduct refresher training in these situations, so there is not a set schedule. So Travis mentioned uh, about training that the operators already had. Uh, OSHA does give you a break um, on this when you've got an operator that you, let's say, hire and they've, they've had training in the past. So you don't have to duplicate that training. Uh, that was covered in the previous training for that person. Now, this applies to new hires as well as to refresher training. But as Travis mentioned, there's always truck-specific and workplace-specific issues that the employee is going to need training on. They're new to your facility. They don't know where they can go. They don't know where they can't go, so you have to give them that information. Uh, also, let's say um, we've got an example here. There's an employee who turned sharply while driving too fast, and the load fell off the forks. Now, this incident obviously calls for refresher training. Even though the operator had previous training, or he wouldn't be letting him operate the forklift, he's had previous training on steering, stability, and load handling. You need to review these topics. Those are where he's lacking or not up to snuff. So uh, OSHA doesn't expect you to cover in this training that you're doing with this person something unrelated, like battery charger. No, he, that's not the issue. It's the reckless driving or careless driving. Uh, in addition, regardless of the driver's training background, OSHA requires that each employer evaluate operators prior to allowing them to operate. So just because the uh, operator gives you this big spiel about, yeah, I've done this before, and um, you, got, you got to watch him 
or her operate the forklift. You can't just take their word for it. All right, so then we're getting into the evaluation, which is totally different, and this is where there's a little confusion. Um, this is um, something that has to be done initially. Like I said, you have to evaluate the operator, um, especially if you have a, uh, an operator that's claiming to have experience. And this evaluation is required to determine the effectiveness uh, of any refresher training. So you, after you give the refresher, you evaluate the, the person and he's, he or she's good to go. And then we've got this evaluation that is to be conducted every three years. So even if they don't have an issue, every three years you have to evaluate them. Um, and what does that mean? Well, they have to be observed while they operate in the workplace under the actual conditions that they work in. So you just go out and watch them do their thing. Um, you know, stand off to the side or get in a vantage point where you can see them operate. Then, uh, during this evaluation, the operator's got to be able to answer some pertinent questions to demonstrate that he or she has a knowledge to operate the forklifts. So you, you watch them operate, and then you question them and ask them certain things to give you the impression that they absolutely know what they're doing. And a key point to note here, this evaluation must be more than uh, just a written or verbal test. It's observation. So that, again, I can't stress that enough. Um, and remember, going back uh, a ways, the evaluation must be conducted by someone who has the knowledge, training, and experience to evaluate the truck operator's competence. You just can't have somebody that knows the operator or works with them or her to do that. Okay, we've already gotten some questions on wallet cards and licenses, so this should help a couple uh, listeners out. Um, does OSHA require operators be given a wallet card or license? OSHA does not. Does not require the employer to issue a license or a wallet card, although a lot of employers uh, do that. OSHA actually only requires the employer certify the training has been done. This means a written record uh, on file that the training and evaluation was completed, the names of the persons who performed the training and evaluation. That's important that you got to have it in there. There is no requirement to give the operator any documentation, at least not from federal OSHA. However, we do know that the state of Michigan, they require operators to carry a permit when they operate forklifts. Federal OSHA does not, and we are not aware of any other states that do. And uh, Travis, you're up. Yeah, uh, we're going to, before we move on here to inspecting equipment, I just want to make uh, one, just reemphasize one key point about the operator training. And it's the, it's the point that causes the most confusion among the questions that I get from from customers and clients, and that is, Refresher training versus evaluation. OSHA views them separate. As Mark said, refresher training, where you actually sit them down, go over concepts with them, only needs to be done when certain things happen, those triggers that we had on the slide. There's an accident, there's a near miss, um, some sort of lack of knowledge, new equipment, different kind of equipment, that sort of thing. Evaluation is what OSHA requires to be done initially and then at least once every three years. So evaluation is separate from refresher training. So you have to recertify everyone at least once every three years, and that's done by evaluating their performance in the workplace. They're actually watching them operate and, and asking them a few questions, you know, to make sure they retain the necessary knowledge. So that's the difference between the two, refresher training versus evaluation. And with that, we're going to jump into um, the part about um, you know inspecting your forklifts, which um, you know does also lead to quite a few questions that you can see. You can see on the slide right now some of the things we're gonna we're gonna look at. Well, the requirements are in 1910-178 paragraph Q7, and it's pretty vague. Uh, OSHA says that 
The equipment must be examined daily prior to use or after each shift if you use the equipment around the clock. Um, again, it is pretty vague, so that's why we get quite a few questions, and we're gonna we're gonna go over those um, here in just a second. Uh, but before we do that, um, we'd like to offer all attendees an opportunity to try uh, JJ Keller's Keller Online, uh, absolutely risk-free. Keller Online equips you with a full variety of tools for managing your safety program and meeting your compliance needs. So if you'd like to try out and see how Keller Online can help your company, uh, just make a selection on the poll that's on your screen um, right now. And with that, we're going to jump in here to um, to the inspection requirements. First off, how to inspect. Obviously, the key thing to do is check the manufacturer's recommendations. Each truck um, is going to have specific features and unique inspection needs. But generally speaking, uh, your inspections are going to consist of two parts. Uh, first, the operator should conduct what's called a pre-start visual check with the key off or the power off. And then the operator or whoever's doing the inspection that doesn't always uh, isn't always the operator uh, should perform an operational check with the uh, uh, with the power on or the engine running. On the screen right now are some general items that are common to most forklifts. Again, these do not come from the OSHA standard. Uh, in fact, um, the OSHA standard does not list out all the items you need to inspect. But they do uh, provide some recommendations and some of their guidance. So that's what these are based on, fluid levels, leaks, cracks, defects, pretty much you know, any part of the forklift that you can check with the engine off. And you'll want to give uh, close scrutiny to things like tires, condition of the forks. You know, anything that could really jeopardize safety uh, needs to obviously get a, uh, a very close look. Certainly, if you're using other types of forklifts, like uh, electric-powered or LP gas, um, then there's going to have uh, some additional requirements, as well as additional personal protective equipment that you'll want to make sure uh, the person doing the inspection is wearing, depending on, on what they're doing. You know, if you're dealing with um, uh, electric, you know, batteries, you don't certainly want to watch the electrolyte exposure. And then with LP gas, you know, that... Uh, that in and of itself can cause freeze burn. So there's some uh, personal protective equipment that you'll want to make sure you wear, depending on what the operators are actually doing, whether they're you know, uncovering the caps off the batteries or whatnot. So uh, PPE depends on, on the task. Now, after you complete the pre-operation inspection, operators should conduct what we're calling an operational inspection with the engine running. And that will include things like you see on the slide right now, and again, make sure you check the manufacturer's recommendations as well. Each truck is going to have uh, unique unique features, but you're basically looking at you know anything that uh, that could be defective could lead to safety issues uh, while the operation is taking place. So inspections been conducted and the operators found a few issues. That leads to sort of a sort of a quandary. You know what what is severe enough? that requires the equipment to be taken out of service. Well, first, in OSHA standards, there are very few specific conditions that OSHA actually says warrant immediate removal from service. Um, those are the ones that deal with hazardous sparks from the exhaust, uh, excess operating temperatures, and leaky fuel systems. But it, taking out those specifics, there's also a provision to remove, I'm quoting here, unsafe equipment. And that's the provision that we frequently get questions about and the one we're really talking about on this slide. OSHA has interpreted this um, thing that they'll take a variety of factors into consideration, uh, but at the least, any item that could present harm or risk would need to be taken out of service. And some examples of that would be, according to OSHA, improperly functioning gauges, uh, broken welds, missing bolts, Damage to the overhead guard, obviously, 
Um, same thing goes for tires, if they're missing large pieces of rubber. Um, and of course, anything more severe than that would be considered unsafe too. Uh, so again, you'll use your good judgment along with um, you know, the manufacturer's maintenance operation and inspection recommendations uh, to determine that. There's no magic, um, you know, when you're looking at the tires, there's no magic width for, you know, how large of a chunk is too much. It's going to be for up to each company and each truck to look at, you know, really, is this safe or is it not safe? And with that, I'll turn it over to Mark to uh, talk a little bit about inspection records, which we get tons of questions about. All right, thanks, Travis. Um, we talked about inspection issues, how to conduct them. Let's talk about um, documentation. So in OSHA's eyes, if it's not written down, it didn't happen. Uh, believe it or not, though, and this is, it is hard to believe, OSHA does not actually require that daily forklift inspections be documented or written. And of course, that means that if it's not required to be documented, there's no record retention time if you do um, decide to document your inspections. Um, obviously, even though they're not required, I'm thinking most companies use some kind of an inspection checklist, either written or electronic, and it is a very good idea for two reasons. One, it ensures that all the essential features of the vehicle are inspected routinely, and it provides evidence to an OSHA compliance officer that the forklifts uh, are being inspected as required. It forces the employees to actually perform the inspection in a thorough manner. Related to inspection and unsafe equipment, it's maintenance. Remember that if your employees are doing maintenance, service, or repair on forklifts, then surprise, OSHA's lockout tagout standard applies. Now, with forklifts, there could be numerous hazardous energy sources. For example, batteries uh, and electrical components have shock, arc, and burn hazards. The fuel has fire and explosion hazards. Uh, power transmission and other moving parts, that those are mechanical hazards. Gravitational energy can cause unsupported elevated parts to fall. For example, the forks. And all hazardous energy must be identified and controlled during service and maintenance work so that the unexpected release of energy doesn't cause injury. But what is sufficient for lockout takeout for forklift repair? Well, guidance from OSHA states that turning off the engine and removing the ignition key may provide a pretty significant degree of protection in, in some situations. The and the authorized employee doing the repair or maintenance, they must retain sole control of the key. So it's in their pocket or, you know, they have it. Uh, this procedure assumes that the keyed switch is the only way to start the vehicle. So if there's something else, then you have to um, deal with that. Consider the repair and maintenance work your employees will do and then identify the hazard, excuse me, hazardous energy sources related to the job. Finally, review the truck manufacturer's instructions for information on how to best control those hazards. That information should be in the um, maintenance manual that comes with it, and that's always the place you want to look for this. Your employees may have to insert solid blocks to keep parts from moving. Uh, they may have to disconnect cables, or they may have to take other steps to de-energize trucks before they start service work. And Travis, you're up. All right. So now we're going to, uh, we're going to take a look at um, attachments and modifications, which brings up all sorts of interesting, interesting issues. Um, so first up, OSHA requires that you get prior manufacturer written approval or any additions or modifications that affect, quote, capacity and safe operation. And OSHA has interpreted this very liberally to cover, geez, everything from uh, warning lights to personnel platforms or man cages. So if you plan on adding to or modifying your powered industrial trucks, you must get the manufacturer's prior written approval 
and then change the capacity plates and operating instructions accordingly. Now, what do you do if the manufacturer says no or simply doesn't reply at all? Um, certainly not an uncommon situation. Uh, unfortunately, though, it is one that OSHA, OSHA has addressed for us. So in a letter of interpretation uh, back in 1997, OSHA says that if an employer seeks written approval from the manufacturer and the manufacturer says no to your modification request or addition or doesn't respond at all, then the agency will accept written approval of the modification addition from a qualified registered uh, professional engineer. And that engineer has to do the same type of safety analysis um, that the manufacturer would do, or if the manufacturer uh, gave you a negative response, then you would, that engineer would have to address the issues that were contained in, in that response. So, um, so there's two options for you to go about this. Again, it is difficult sometimes, particularly with older equipment, but just liability in general, it's tough sometimes to get manufacturers to give you the approval for these things. So OSHA will go allow you to use an engineer provided they do the appropriate testing. With that, I'll turn it over to Mark to look at one specific type of attachment that really causes uh, some confusion. Thanks, Travis. Personal platforms. Uh, OSHA considers these to be attachments, and they require the employers that employers obtain the manufacturer's prior written approval before adding them. I can't tell you how many questions we get about people wanting to build their own or they have built their own and they're using them and then they ask us if it's okay. Um, so that's the first thing to consider, whether or not the manufacturer even will allow the platform to be used. And here, of course, we're talking about adding a personal platform to equipment like um, a sit-down forklifts forks. Uh, we're not talking about equipment designed to lift personnel, uh, for example, order pickers. And a lot of manufacturers make uh, platforms, so you could always go through them to get it. Uh, once it's determined that it's okay with the manufacturer, then you have to deal with the safety issues of using that uh, platform uh, with a forklift. And there's quite a few. The first one, uh, seems to be fall hazards. That would be the major concern. So workers being lifted must be protected by either guardrails or a personal fall arrest system. And in addition, that platform itself must be secured to whatever, the forks or whatever. You just can't slide it on. Typically it's chained on. Uh, otherwise it can tip or slide off. In addition, the operator needs to remain at the controls and exercise caution in operation. OSHA's regulation doesn't really go into the details of the safe operation of using these platforms, but OSHA referenced the industry standard, uh, the ANSI B56.1. Uh, this standard provides quite a bit of guidance on fall protection, uh, securing personal platforms, and procedures for elevating uh, your employees. This B56.1 standard is copyrighted, but luckily you can download it for free through the website shown on the slide right now. And take a look if you're going to look at that elevating personnel is addressed at section 4.17. Let's talk about this controversy here, body belts versus body harnesses. Um, certain types of equipment, uh, for example, order pickers that are designed for lifting your employees and require the use of a personal fall protection system rather than a cage, you know, a guard guardrail uh, platform. Uh, employers often wonder, hey, can my em employees wear a harness or can they wear a body belt? Well. OSHA's walking working surface rule that came out in 2016 talks about this and says the personal fall arrest system must include a harness rather than a body belt. It's important to note though that body belts could be used as part of a positioning system, meaning it keeps them from even getting to the edge of something to fall off, but they cannot be used as part of a fall arrest 
system. They're unsafe and they cause a lot of injury. And I'm guessing most facilities around the country, if not all of them, you know, I'm sure they're still, they do not have any body belts at all around because they don't want employees to use them in the wrong situation. So, Travis, you're up. All right. So with that, we're going to... We're going to take a look here at what we're calling some other other safety equipment. I guess is the best way to best way to phrase it. Doesn't really fit in with with attachments, but um, we're talking seat belts, backup alarms, and that sort of thing. So we're going to we're going to start off looking at current seat belt use policy. So federal OSHA requires that um, if a if equipment comes with a seat belt then the operators must use the seatbelt. If the equipment does not have a seatbelt, then the employer is required to check with the manufacturer to see if there is a retrofit kit available. And if so, then you have to uh, install that kit and then operators would have to use it. Now you won't find this in the actual powered industrial truck standard. Um, it's not addressed in there. It's addressed in uh, a letter of interpretation as well as the OSHA compliance directive. And we have those uh, referenced for you on the slide right now uh, in case you want to look them up. But basically, OSHA enforces the issue under the general duty clause of the OSHA Act. Now, regarding backup alarms or beeper alarms, um, OSHA does not require them. The only sound producing uh, mechanism that OSHA requires actually is, is the horn. And they require the horn to be sounded at um, blind spots and uh, intersections. The ANSI standard that we referred to is somewhat similar, only it does have a provision for the alarms if an employer determines that conditions are such that they're needed for safety. And that, that goes with pretty much anything we've been talking about here. Uh, you know, even though OSHA may not specifically require a backup alarm, if you're in a situation where there's a lot of pedestrians and a lot of other noise or a lot of different types of equipment, you know, you want to go, you don't You don't want to rely just on the OSHA standard not requiring them. Backup alarms may certainly be needed. So and that, that's the same thing with the training that we've talked about and everything else. You know, there's nothing that says you can't train employees uh, yearly if you want to. It's just, we're, we're just giving you the OSHA requirements, but you can always go above and above and beyond that. Fire extinguishers. Couldn't tell you how many times I get this question, and it, you know, it's it, the reason. The reason we get so, there's so much confusion is half the manufacturers ship their forklifts, and they put the fire extinguisher on there. Then there are manufacturers who do not. So the question becomes: Does OSHA actually require these, or don't they? And the answer is no. The, the OSHA powered industrial truck standard does not specifically require that you equip a forklift with a fire extinguisher. Certainly, if you're in an area where the trucks travel, there may be requirements for fire protection in that area. But here again, aside from OSHA, you need to look at your local fire codes because they certainly can require fire extinguishers depending on the hazards. Um, and the other part of it is, let's say you buy a forklift and it becomes equipped with a fire extinguisher, then OSHA would expect you to maintain um, that extinguisher, and you would look at if you expected your operators to use the extinguisher, then you would switch over to the 1910-157 standard, which actually you know deals with training people to use a fire extinguisher. So it's not addressed in the forklift um, standard at all, but that's kind of the general the general expectation from OSHA. Mark, I believe you're up again. All right, thanks, Travis. Let's move into forklift operation. We'll talk about the questions on the slide, in particular, a couple unorthodox, use, unorthodox uses of forklifts, um, as well as a more common speed limit and pedestrian safety issues, leaving the truck unintended, all that good stuff. So, okay, split forking or bulldozing. Um, these are pretty as I said, unusual ways to use a forklift. Um, split forking, lifting two pallets with one fork for each, and in the case of bulldozing, pushing a load on the floor. Um, 
just moving it, sliding it along the floor with the forks. Now OSHA says these practices could be very hazardous. Uh, forklifts typically aren't designed to um, lift and move uh, loads in that split forking or bulldozing manner. Uh, OSHA requires that employees receive training on any operating instructions, warnings, or precautions listed in the operator's manual. I am pretty sure that most manuals are going to have warnings against this type of practice. And then if so, uh, then you have to include that in the training program, which makes it off limits. OSHA also says that loads must be stable and safely arranged. And again, um, very unlikely that these two practices would result in a um, stable load. So if if you want to take a look at that letter of interpretation for uh, some more information. All right, so what about speed limits? Um, OSHA does not actually set a speed limit for safe operation of powered industrial trucks. Uh, they basically leave it up to the employer to determine what that safe speed is, and then they require operators to follow the, the, the authorized speed limits. And OSHA said that they're looking, they look at a variety of factors if they happen to come into your workplace. And, um, you know, if there's an incident involving a forklift and they're looking to see whether or not they were speeding, they basically look at, you know, the type of truck, any manufacturer's limitations, you know, what type of load's being carried, what's the operating surface, uh, how much pedestrian traffic is going on. So there's a lot of things that you look, you look about, but ultimately it's up to the employer to set that speed limit. You could turn to the industry standard that we've talked about, ANSI B56.1. It does have a stopping distance formula that you can uh, you can use to, it'll help you come up with some theoretical stopping distances if you know certain variables. So take that with some other things and then you can hopefully set your um, set your speed limit appropriately. Next up, we're going to look at ramps and inclines, which certainly uh, lead to some confusion because the OSHA standard is pretty vague uh, when it comes when it comes to it. But uh, the ANSI standard gives some pretty detailed guidance, as well as OSHA guidance in the form of an OSHA e-tool. Basically, the way it goes is this: um, with a typical sit-down forklift, you'll always point the load up the incline when carrying a load, and that's regardless of direction of travel. So in other words, going up the incline, operators drive forward, they point the forks upgrade and use a spotter if the load blocks the view. When going down the incline, the operator drives in reverse, uh, obviously turning your head facing downgrade with the forks pointed upgrade. So that's when there is a load. On the other hand, if you're traveling without a load, uh, the guidance says that the fork should point downgrade regardless of the direction of travel. I know that's a little contrary to what a lot of people think. Um, I think it has to do with, uh, you know, the counterweight that's in the back of most sit-down forklifts. But anyway, that does come from an ANSI standard as well as the OSHA e-tool, and we have the references for you um, on the slide. And that's for a standard sit-down forklift. A little bit different with a pallet jack. Uh, in those cases, the recommendation is that the forks be pointed downgrade regardless of direction of travel and regardless of whether or not there's a load. And then if you're talking about things like a stand-up truck or something like that, a lot of times the manufacturers do not even um, recommend those to be used on inclines or grades. So you always want to check uh, the manufacturer's instructions, uh, particularly for anything that's not a sit-down forklift or a powered uh, pallet jack. So before we wrap up, uh, we'd like to um, once again offer all attendees a complimentary login to Keller Online. Um, you can get all the information that we've covered today and more uh, with the most widely used safety management tool on the web. Keller Online offers interactive tools for workplace inspections, training programs, record keeping, and more to help keep your company uh, in compliance. So we've thrown quite a bit at you today. So on the slide right now is just a you know a brief overview of what we talked about. 
Uh, we're just going to leave you with that. And um, I'm going to switch it back over to Alan now uh, to give you um, a little bit of information before Mark and I uh, answer as many questions that we have we have time for today. All right, thank you to our speakers for their excellent insights and expertise. Uh, before we start the q and I want to remind everyone of the evaluation survey we've asked you to complete. Uh, the survey should be appearing on your screen now. Your input is important because it will help us improve future webcast. If you do not see the evaluation survey on your screen, please turn off your pop-up blocker. You may also access the survey by clicking the survey button near the lower right part of your screen. Okay, now let's get to some questions. All right, this is Travis. I'll start us off with um, with a question here. Is there an OSHA regulation on a yearly third-party inspection? Uh, Federal OSHA does not specifically require uh, any sort of yearly third-party inspection. Um, what you might want to do is take a look at that ANSI standard that we talked about. There's a section in there that talks about maintenance. Uh, there are certain items, um, it's not necessarily a yearly basis, but there are certain items like fork repair where it is uh, required that a third party perform the maintenance or else test the maintenance. So it's not necessarily that there's a yearly third party inspection, but there are certainly maintenance activities where a third party equivalent to the manufacturer would need to make the repair. Um, the other thing I can think of is there's a few states I believe Minnesota is the one that comes to mind where they require an annual inspection of your carbon monoxide, uh, the emissions. Um, so you'll want to keep that in mind. But no, uh, Federal OSHA does not specify any kind of yearly uh, third-party inspection. Okay, thanks, Travis. Uh, we got a couple uh, about construction sites. So um, the construction 1926 standard uh, refers you to the OSHA 1910-178 standard. So they're asking about um, would the refresher training requirements for people in construction who work on sites that frequently change weekly and monthly? Yes, but keep in mind, this would be like a toolbox talk. So you get your operators together uh, before the shift and say, hey, I'll, now that area over by those excavations is off limits. Um, two forklifts. Uh, now that uh, area by the scaffolding uh, is off limits to forklifts. So it's that kind of a thing. Um, just real brief and to the point. Travis? Yeah, a uh, question here. Do scrubbers and sweepers fall under 1910-178 uh, for training, operator certification, and inspection? No, they do not. Um, OSHA has, there's a letter of interpretation from OSHA, and I, I don't know the date of it, but um, they have said in a letter of interpretation that floor scrubbers and sweepers are not considered powered industrial trucks. So that would be something that, uh, you know, would be covered. They would cite the, any, any hazards under the general duty clause of the OSHA Act. Again, when they do that, they reference the manufacturer's uh, operating instructions and, um, and any industry standards that there would be. And I believe we, we have, have time, uh, time here. For one uh, more for... question. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. One more. All right. Uh, can can one employee do inspections on all PIT equipment at the start of each day, or does each operator have to do their own inspection? Now OSHA leaves that up to the employer. They just say that it has to be inspected before the start of each shift. It does not have to be by the employee who is operating it. It can be a maintenance personnel. It can be one employee doing several. The key thing is, though, is that whoever the operator is needs to be able to recognize during the shift anything that might be unsafe so that they can report that and take it out of service. So, but no, they, the one employee, there's nothing that prohibits one employee doing all the inspections. All right, thank you, everyone. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded to our speakers. Once again, I hope you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey on your screen to give us your feedback. That ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to tra thank Travis Roden, Mark Stromey, everyone at J.J. Keller, and, of course, all of our listeners. Have a safe day.